Okay, we're delighted to have Dr. Leo Purser with us this morning from Liberty University. He'll be bringing our message in just a few moments. Uh, Mr. Dr. Purser was here last summer on one occasion, and apparently you were good enough to have you back. So we're, gl we're glad that you're here with us again this morning. I am again. I don't know if that means Jeff ran out of people to call or if uh, he really liked what I had to say last time. So thank you for the welcome, and uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, this time along, I brought my family with me. Uh, my ki kids are going to be embarrassed that I mentioned them, but they're sitting right here in about the third row. And uh, that's my wife and daughter and son. I'm not going to use them as sermon illustrations. We made a promise. So uh, I did that last week to them. I was preaching in uh, Lynchburg and uh, brought them up in the sermon. My son actually woke up long enough to hear his name. So uh, <clears throat> thanks, Hudson. Appreciate that. He's going to hate me for the rest of his life. Uh, today, as I prayed about what I wanted to share in this church with this, with this group of people, I kept coming back to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And, and I, I have a passage I want to share with you today briefly. And, you know, when a Baptist preacher says briefly, what that means is, you know, until tomorrow. So, uh, and by the way, I want to remind you, I did this last time. Whenever you see a Baptist preacher do that, it means absolutely nothing. Because I'll ignore it there, too. Uh, <clears throat> What I want to do today is take you through Mark chapter 3 and talk to you about a subject that I think is important for us to learn as Christians. What happens when Jesus comes to church? When I was a young man growing up in Millington, Tennessee, a small town not much bigger than uh, Rocky Mount, to be honest with you, uh, we, we, I grew up at First Baptist Church, Millington. It's still there. Uh, pastor A. Ray Newcomb was my pastor for most of my adult life. Uh, Brother Ray retired from 35 years of ministry at this church about uh, five years ago now, I guess it's been, or thereabouts. And uh, Brother Ray's the one that led me to the Lord. And at First Baptist Millington in the old church, we had this glorious steeple. I don't know if you, if you, if you look around town, you'll see some churches like this. Some of the older churches have these beautiful steeples that look like they ought to have a, a church bell in it. And when I was a kid, uh, I, I had an abundance of, um, energy. Uh, not so much anymore. <laughs> the older I get, seems like I wish I could have kept that energy from childhood and bottled it and saved it for later. Um, I'd run all over the church. I don't know about you, but uh, uh, when I ran all over the church, there's always uh, no lack of people trying to tell me to slow down, to quit running in the church, to be careful. Of course, I, I realized later they were trying to keep me from knocking people over. It had nothing to do with uh, disrespecting God. But one of the one of the little old ladies in our church said to me, "Don't run in God's house." Well, I was, I was a naive kid. When she said, don't run in God's house, I thought, this must be where God lives. It's God's house. So what did I do? I went looking for God. So every nook and cranny, every corner, every closet that they didn't want you looking into, I opened the doors. I went where I wasn't supposed to go. And when I couldn't find God anywhere in the church, I decided it was time to climb inside, you know where this is going already, don't you? The steeple. Because I figured, he's God. It's going to be at the highest point, right? It's going to be easy. We're going to find him. It's going to work. So I'm inside the steeple, climbing up the, the rickety old stairs, the rickety old ladder, actually, that's inside the steeple, trying to find God. When my mom found me, I realized I needed God. But uh, <clears throat> at that point in time, <laughs> I was still looking for God. Now, I, I never seemed to find God in that physical building. I realized that as a young person, I was rather naive. God doesn't physically dwell a building anymore. There is no temple, there is no sanctuary, there is no tabernacle. God indwells His people. And I understand that. But I've often wondered since that experience as a child, what would happen if Jesus came to church? What would church be like 
if Jesus actually showed up. I'm not talking about the, the stories that you read in the books. I'm not talking about movies. I'm not talking about this kind. I'm talking about what really would have happened. And I found an illustration from Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 3. We'll be in two passages today, Mark 3 and Romans 10. But Mark 3, we have an experience of Jesus where Jesus goes to church. Now, let me set the background for you. Jesus' ministry has just started. He's been baptized by John. He's already gone out in the wilderness and spent 40 days in the wilderness and uh, has started his ministry. He's come out of the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he comes into town, and they invite him to come speak at the sanctuary, at the, at, the, at the synagogue. The synagogue in the first century is like the church today. The synagogue was the place where people gathered to worship. It was a place where people gathered for special events, birthday parties, uh, for weddings, for funerals. So the synagogue was like church for the first century Jew. So Jesus is going to church. And when Jesus gets to church, they recognize Jesus as an important person, and they ask him to speak. And let me read to you the story. Jesus entered into the synagogue, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to them, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. When Jesus came to church, I want to talk about four things that Jesus did. When Jesus came to church, he saw a need. He recognized the problem. Number two, when Jesus came to church, he issued a call. And number three, when Jesus came to church, he offered a command. And last, but certainly not least, when Jesus comes to church, he expects a response. Let's pray, and then I'll break this down for you. Father, this is your word. Jesus, this is your story. We pray that you would receive an abundance of praise and honor in the words that are about to come out of my mouth. May Jesus be exalted. May the word of God be honored. May your truth pierce us, causing us to respond in faith, causing us to be men and women of God as you want us to be. May your word, like a sword, pierce us to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, of the, of the joints and the marrow. Get down to the reality of our lives, Lord. Make it clear to us what you wish, that Jesus might receive the honor he deserves. We pray in his name. Amen. So, here's what you need to know. Jesus is in church. They've had the singing. They've had the choir time. They've taken the offering, presumably. Uh, in case you didn't realize it, all the things we do in our typical church service happen in synagogue on any given Sabbath day. On any given Saturday, what the Jews do in their synagogue, very similar. Uh, they might sing different songs, and they might have different uh, means of collecting the offering, but they do some of the same things. They pray, they read the Word, they have sermons. So Jesus is there. They've already had all the, the extra stuff that goes into a worship service, and now it's time for the sermon. And Jesus stands up to preach. And I want you to get the scene. Jesus walks up to the front of the church. He looks out over a congregation similar to this one, and he sees a man with a withered hand. He sees his first problem in his congregation. 
he saw a need. The man with the withered hand, Luke 6 tells us that the man's hand that was withered was his right hand. You have to understand that to have your right hand withered means that you are left out of polite society. The right hand is the hand of business. The right hand is the hand of greeting. The right hand is the hand you would use to uh, hold your children, to eat your food, to shake your neighbor's hand. The left hand was the hand of uncleanness. It was the hand that was used for hygiene. It was not the hand you used to greet people. It was not the hand you used to uh, high-five people. This was the hand that you kept to yourself. But it was the only hand the man had that worked. And so when he would come to synagogue, he would sit in the back of the church because he didn't feel like he belonged because he had something wrong with him. He had a withered hand. Imagine in a business situation. He goes to shake hands with someone he wants to make a deal with. The guy says, I'm willing to work with you. Let's shake on it. And the guy stretches out this withered hand and the other man probably pulls back in repulsion. You're going to shake me with that? Man had obstacles. Social and religious obstacles. He was not the kind of person that you would allow in polite society. You wouldn't invite him to your banquets. You wouldn't invite him to your Christmas parties. He wouldn't be invited to have the the seat of honor. He wouldn't be invited to speak at various places. And Jesus sees this man in the back of the congregation. And he draws attention to the man. He looks up. And he sees the man with the withered hand, and he says to him, get up and come forward. Now put yourself in this man's place. You spent most of your life with this problem with your hand. People look at you and they think that your hand is a result of sin, maybe sin on your part, maybe sin on your parents' part. Remember in John 9, when Jesus is walking along with the disciples, they see a blind man. The disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, whose fault is it? Whose sin is it that this man is blind? Was it his parents or was it his own? And Jesus says, this blindness is not because of sin, it's for the glory of God. But everybody in this church, everybody in this synagogue, probably treated this man with a withered hand the same way as they would treat the blind man. His family is sinful. Remember later on in the story of the blind man, once he's healed and the Pharisees are questioning the guy, the guy says, look, do you want to be followers of Jesus or what? You keep asking me to tell the story. I told you the story a hundred times. Here's what he did. He spit, put mud on my eyes, said, go wash. I washed. I could see. Okay, that's the story. What more do you want to know? And the Pharisee said, you're a sinner born in sin. And we know this man is not from God. And this sinner, born in sin, whose eyes had been opened so he could see, looked at the Pharisee and said, I don't know whether this man is a sinner or not. But I know this, in the history of the known world, never has an unrighteous man opened the eyes of the blind. All right? Now put yourself in the shoes of this, of this man with a withered hand, sitting in the back of the church, trying to hide, just showing up because he wants to hear the music, he wants to be part of the sermon, he wants to be part of the fellowship, but he really can't. He's there. The religious leaders probably think that uh, he's, a, he's an example, a sermon example. Don't sin. Don't fail God like this man, and you'll end up with this problem. They might have picked on him for his deformity. They might have avoided him for his deformity. He couldn't even be a greeter in the synagogue because the Greek people with his hand would have been seen as, as unclean. It would not have been a happy moment. So the man sitting back there, And Jesus calls on him. There's a need. There's a withered hand. How are we like this guy? How are we like him? What withered hands do we have that are maybe not so obvious to the world? 
I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your obstacle is. I don't know what the thing that keeps you out of polite society might be. I don't know what the thing is that keeps you from being the person you want to be in this church. But God does. But in order to deal with it, God must spotlight it. I just made every one of you uncomfortable, didn't I? Because we all have something we would prefer God ignore. It's true. Last week, I taught on false teachers. I preached on false teachers in my church from Jude, verses 11 to 19. And one of the things that the false teachers like to do is hide their real lives. They didn't want people to know that they were licentious, immoral people. Some of the false teachers, though, exulted in it, and they didn't mind people knowing it, and they, in fact, encouraged people to join them in it. True Christianity is not afraid of the light of God. A true follower of Christ is not afraid of God to shine His light on any withered hand, any deformity, any lack in our being. Because when God shines His spotlight on our lack, He is showing us where He intends to do a great work. Remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about a thorn in the flesh. And he says these words, I will rather rejoice in my weaknesses because when I am weak, He is strong. God doesn't need a superstar. God doesn't need another famous name. God needs a bunch of people with deformed, withered hands that are willing to stand up and be noticed. That are willing to take a risk. Jesus spotlights this man's withered hand. What's ours? What's keeping us from doing what God called us to do. But I want you to note, that's not the only problem in the congregation. The withered hand is one problem, but note also that there's a problem with a hard heart. In verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, I don't know about you, but if Jesus comes to church today, if he he comes to Rocky Mount, I hope he doesn't look around at us with anger. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Really don't want to be on the receiving end of that. But Jesus walks in, he looks at these people, he sees them, and he gets angry. And it says this, he's grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus saw a problem. It wasn't just that this man was being outcast. It wasn't just that this man was sitting in the back. It wasn't just this man was being overlooked. It was that the people in the congregation had hardness of heart. Note that the Pharisees were there. I love the Pharisees. The Pharisees remind me of what I, ought to, what I probably am in real life, what I ought not to be. Before we get too hard on the Pharisees, let's remember that the Pharisees are our closest cousins in Judaism. Their doctrine is pretty much the same as Christian doctrine with the exception of Jesus. They believe in a resurrection of the dead. They believe in rewards and punishments. They believe in angels and demons. They believe the Bible is the Word of God, inspired by God. The Pharisees, many of whom became Christians, Paul, Nicodemus, anybody want to talk about some famous Pharisees? These men... Believe God's Word. But their hardness of heart caused them to miss the point. Notice it says in verse 2, they were watching Him to see if He would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse Him. These are the people who come to church and look for a reason to complain. These are the people who come to church and look for something, anything in the congregation. The pastor, the music, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're looking for something that we can accuse somebody of. These are the false teachers of Jude who run around making light of Jude's authority, talking about the apostolic authority of the leaders of the church as though it was nothing. These are the Pharisees. And they're watching Jesus. We put Him up on the pulpit so we could watch Him closely. 
We're going to watch, see what he says. We're going to catch him in something. They came to church for the main reason of finding a problem. Not fixing a problem. Not healing a problem. Not ministering to people with problems. But to find a problem in Jesus. To accuse him. May I remind you, the only other person in the whole Bible that's described as an accuser is the enemy of our souls. Satan. So remember when you play the role of accuser, when you join in with the Pharisees, you're joining the wrong side. Accusations are easy to throw around. They're easy to come up with. Last week I even said to the congregation that I was preaching, it's easy to see someone else's sin. But reality is it's a lot harder to deal with my own. In Matthew chapter 23... Jesus issues some woes to the Pharisees. And one of the woes He issues to them is, Woe to you, Pharisees! You you tithe the mint. You tithe the cumin. You tithe all this sweet-smelling stuff. And rightly so. But you miss the weightier issues of righteousness and mercy and justice. We just took up an offering. Many of you put your tithe in that, in that offering bucket. Many of you put above a tithe. You offered an offering to the Lord. Bless you. Wonderful. That's what God's called you to do. But are we also concerned, not just about the financial stability of this congregation, but about justice, about righteousness, about holiness, about mercy? These Pharisees were more interested in outing Jesus then they were interested in ministering to the man who'd been coming to their synagogue for years with a withered hand. They had hard hearts. And their hard hearts were just as much a hindrance to them as a withered hand was to the other man. Their hard hearts kept them from seeing the needs of others. Kept them from ministering to the needs of others. Hard hearts kept them focused. Are you ready for this? On doctrinal correctness instead of obedience to what we know to be true. I'm a Southern Baptist, born and bred. Went to Southern Baptist Church before I was out of the womb. I signed the Baptist faith and message so many times I've forgotten how to write my name. I love the Southern Baptist Convention. I love Baptist churches. But can I tell you that when we fight over doctrine, we're doing Satan a favor? Do you realize that people in Rocky Mount really don't care if you sign the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? What they care about is whether you care for them or not. Of course, if you read the Baptist Faith and Message, you'll notice it says something in there about ministering to the poor and the needy. It's in there, trust me. If you haven't read it, go read it. But my point isn't that doctrine's not important. My point is doctrine without action is a waste of time. Theology without love is hypocrisy. Theology without grace leads to legalism. Legalism never saved a soul. Legalism never ministered to the needs of one person. Legalism never made anybody a member of the family of God. The Pharisees were legalists. They weren't interested in what Jesus might do for the congregation. He was interested in what they might, they were interested in what he might do that they could catch him at. 
They were hiding in the corner, waiting for Jesus to do something stupid. They had their planks in their eyes fully planted, but they wanted to take the splinter out of someone else's eye. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, If you're going to remove a splinter from your friend's eye, be sure and get the plank out of your own eye so you can see to do the job. Jesus says, deal with your own sin first. Then you can focus on the lack of obedience of other people. Hard hearts kept them from doing what's right. And hard hearts, I remind you, verse 5, looking around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Hard hearts anger Jesus. I try to so live my life as not to make my Savior disappointed. I don't want to stand here before you and pretend that I'm perfect and that I always do that. I'm sure that there have been many times I've grieved Jesus. I hope there haven't been very many where I made him mad. (laughs) I'm being honest. I don't want to live a life that grieves my Lord. I don't want to live a life that angers Jesus. I don't want Jesus to come into my church and look at me with anger because I have a hard heart. Remember Pharaoh? Remember hard hearts? Pharaoh, Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I won't do it. Moses says, look, here's a miracle from God. Does a miracle. Pharaoh says, so what? I don't care. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. In the book of Exodus, Moses, God through Moses did all these miracles, right? Turn the water into blood. Send these frogs into your house. Bugs. All right, sores all over the bodies, raining fire from heaven. I don't know about you, raining fire from heaven, that would get my attention, right? I mean, we've been all reading about tornadoes in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, and this that's bad enough, but imagine a tornado that was coupled with fire from heaven, that the tornado not only blew your stuff around, but it set it on fire. This is what the Egyptians faced. And it says that Pharaoh called Moses in and said to Moses, please go to God and ask him to stop this. We'll do whatever you want. Just please ask God to stop it. And so Moses goes out a few days journey, goes before Yahweh, the great God of the universe, and says, please stop this. And God says, I will. And he goes back to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, so what? I don't care about your God. And I don't care about your people. And it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. The quickest way to lose the glory and the grace of God in the life of any Christian is through a hard heart. The Pharisees' hearts had become hard, perhaps because they were jealous of the accomplishments of Jesus. Jesus was getting attention they felt they rightly deserved. Jesus picked up the ministry where John the Baptist left off. And they didn't like John the Baptist because John the Baptist didn't dress the way they wanted him to dress. He didn't preach the way they wanted him to preach. He preached to the the rabble of the society. He preached to the rebels of society. He went out in the wilderness and he baptized people in repentance and called on folks to turn from their sin. And the Pharisees said, John, the Baptist is not of God. Then John is killed and Jesus picks up John's sermon. If you don't believe me, read the Gospels. When Jesus starts his ministry, he doesn't start by preaching, by the way, I've come to die for your sins. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same sermon John preached. And then Jesus goes, one-ups John and goes out and starts doing miracles. And starts proclaiming himself the Messiah, the one who will die, the Lamb of God. Sent to die for the sins of the world. The Pharisees were jealous. What jealousy is your hard heart or your withered hand? 
What is it that keeps you from doing what you know God's called you to do because you think you deserve more recognition? Can I tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I am a words of affirmation guy. I love to be praised. I'm not saying that so you come up every church and tell me how great the sermon is, by the way. But that'd be fine if you want to. Uh, <laughs> that's not the intention. But I am. My wife will tell you. You want to motivate me? Tell me how good I am. Words of affirmation. And God's been showing me lately that I'm looking for words of affirmation from all the wrong folks. When I stand before Jesus, when I stand before God, God's not going to say, did Jerry Falwell approve of your ministry? Did Billy Graham approve of your ministry? Did the pastor of such and such church approve of your ministry? When I stand before God, all God's going to ask if is He approved. The only well done I need to hear is the well done from my Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to tell you there are men I work with at Liberty that are smarter than me. They're better writers than me. There are men I work with at Liberty that intimidate me. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I realize that sometimes I'm a Pharisee because I get jealous of these men. And I want the attention they get. I want their reputations. I want their books. I want to have the, rec the, the recognition for heaven written. Like the Pharisees, my heart gets hard because I look at other people and want what they have. In Psalm 95... The psalmist is talking about the Jews in the wilderness. When the Jews sent out spies, and they listened to the ten spies who said, you can't take the land, and they refused to go into the land. You all know the story, right? The ten spies said, you can't do it. They're too big. They're too powerful. We can't do it. Caleb and Joshua said, baloney. God said, let's do. This is God's property, not ours. It's God's business, not ours. It's God's problem, not ours. All we got to do is do what God told us to do, and He'll take care of the rest of it. But the people listened to the ten and not the two. And you know the story. God said, because you've done this, you will now die in the wilderness. You won't inherit the land. Your children won't inherit it, but you won't. Forty years, you'll wander in the wilderness. And the people, the next morning, got up and they, they cried out, Oh, Lord, we, we failed. And they gathered their swords and their spears, and they charged into the promised land, and they promptly got beaten by the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Midianites, because God had told them, I've made my decision. You will not inherit the land. Psalm 95 says that God was repulsed by these people. That's the word the psalmist used. He didn't want to be around them. Their hardness of heart. How are we like the Pharisees? We focus more on doctrine than on doing what we know is true. Do the needs of others get overlooked so we can beat our dead horses? Is our reputation more important than God's ministry to us? When Jesus comes to church, He looks for needs to address. Sometimes He finds withered hands. Sometimes He finds hard hearts. But in both cases, Jesus has a cure. When Jesus comes to church... He looks for needs to address, but he also issues a call. In verses 3 and 4, I love these verses. Jesus says to the man, get up and come forward. Now think of what the man might have been thinking. Oh great, here it comes again. I get to be another sermon illustration. 
Now this rabbi from Nazareth is going to pick on me, just like all the other rabbis. Might as well go forward, get it over with. He's going to use me as an illustration for sin. <sighs> Why do I even come to church? I know I'm going to be picked on. But the man comes up and comes forward. What's God called us to do? Why are we hesitating? Young lady that my wife mentors just called us this week. She said, God can't use someone like me. I overheard the conversation. I turned to my wife and I said, you tell her to quit lying. She murdered anybody? David, Moses, Paul. She denied Jesus, Peter. God can't use me. God can use anyone who's available. God's not as concerned about your past as He is about your future. Let that sink in for a minute. God knows what you did. God knows what you've done. God's concerned about making you the man or woman of God He's called you to be today. And when Jesus calls this man forward, Jesus' purpose is not to use this man as an illustration, but, uh, well, not at least not the way the man might think, but to use this man as an illustration of what God can do to withered hands and hard hearts that are offered up to him. The call was given to elicit a response of faith. Faith responds to God's Word. If you, if you will, roll over to Romans 10 with me right quick. I want to read you a chunk of Romans 10. This sermon's not on Romans 10, and I promise not to launch into Romans, because if I did, we would be here till tomorrow. But I want to read you some, a section of, of this passage. Listen carefully what Paul says to the Romans, starting in verse 8. What does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will, not might, not could, not maybe, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not, will not, will not, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So Paul says, so. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ I skipped over verses 14 and 15 on purpose because I want you to realize without verses 14 and 15, 16 is pretty damaging. 14 and 15 says, How will they hear unless someone goes? How will they hear? Jesus wanted to do good, not harm. He wanted to show the benefit of the Sabbath. He did not want to create problems for the man. He was not looking to create issues. He was looking to do good. The Pharisees responded by silence. Silence. But they kept silent. Silence can be useful sometimes, but sometimes silence can be deadly, can't it? I was driving through my, my neighborhood the other day, 
My wife and I are blessed to live in a, a nice rural suburban neighborhood. But it's a sad thing in our society. I don't know my neighbors like I used to when I was younger. I'm driving through my neighborhood and I'm praying for my family. When all of a sudden I feel convicted to pray for the families I don't even know. And the Lord convicted me with this word. Are you as concerned about the lostness of your neighbors as you are about the spiritual condition of your own family? I'll have to admit to you. I had to, I had to say to God, no, I'm not. How will they hear if no one goes? Our silence can be deadly. Not all silence is golden. Not all silence does a good thing. When Jesus comes to church, he expects people to respond. He issues a call to act. Will we be silent or will we take a stand? You're in the last stretch, so hang in there. Number three, when Jesus comes to church, he offers a command. He tells the man in verse three to get up and come forward. Then he says to the crowd, is it good to do some, is it right to do something good or do something bad on a Sabbath day? To give life or to kill? Nobody answered him. They kept silent. Jesus got mad at the hardness of their heart. He looks at the man and he doesn't say to the man, congratulations, you've won the lottery. You're healed. He doesn't say to the man, go and sin no more. He doesn't say to the man, hey, I'm God. If you only listen to what I say, everything you want in your life will come into being. Jesus isn't saying that. He looks at a man who's never stretched out his hand and he says one simple command. Stretch out your hand. Now, what would you do? <laughs> I, I can't help but think of the blind man, I'm sorry, the, the lame man in John chapter 5, right? You know this story? I love John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. There's a guy laying there for 38 years, can't walk. And Jesus says to the guy, what do you want? The man's laying there by the pool. And the man says, you know, now I don't know about you, but if Jesus walks up to me and says, what do I want? I've got a list ready just in case. <laughs> well, Jesus, number one, uh, <clears throat> All right, maybe you're like me. But this guy, Jesus says, what do you want? And the guy says, you sound like so many Christians I know. Oh, Lord, if only I had someone to help me out. I could do such wonderful things. But every time I try to get into the pool, somebody gets in before me. And Jesus looks at the guy and doesn't say, well, I'll tell you what, i got 12 disciples here. Guys, come on, let's help this guy in the pool. Right? Which would have been... Not a bad thing to do. Jesus looks at the man and he says these words. Not, congratulations, you've won the lottery. But rather, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, I'm thinking, if I've been laying there 38 years, lame, and couldn't walk, I'm looking at this guy going, man, that's just kind of cruel. <laughs> you know? Dude, 38 years. You want to hear the history? But something happened in this man's heart when the Word of God was spoken to him. Something happened in him that he thought, what if, what if, what if? And he stood up, took his bed, and he walked. And you know what he got in trouble for? This is funny. You'll love this. He's walking through the temple area, and some Pharisee stops him and says, what are you doing? And the guy says, the man who made my legs whole said, get up and walk and take your bed. And I'm taking my bed. And the Pharisee said to him, you can't carry your bed on Sunday. 
It's against the rules. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's a lame man in this room that hadn't walked for 38 years and Jesus healed him and he got up and started walking, I'd let him carry whatever he wanted to carry. All right? I'm just going to be honest. And if God told him to carry it, I'm going to say, you do it. Whatever God calls you to carry, carry. Jesus looks at this man. He does the same thing. The man standing in front of the congregation right here. Just imagine I called you forward. And you're standing right here with your withered hand. You're holding it, trying to hide it, trying to keep it from people being seen, seen it. And I say to you, stretch out your withered hand. <laughs> Golly, Jesus. Could you be any more cruel? You know I can't stretch it out. But something in the Word of Christ... Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Something in the Word of Christ hit this man and he said, why not? (laughs) Why not? And he stretched out his hand and it was whole. It was healed. It was perfectly good. He could shake hands. He could hold his babies. He could hug his wife. He could do business. He could preach in the synagogue. He could be a minister of the gospel. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He did not have a label anymore. It was healed. Now, you would think the church would have gotten excited and had a worship service. They didn't. In fact, they got mad. We'll talk about them in a second. But we have to realize that Jesus' command of this man was to do what seems impossible. What has God commanded you that seems too hard? <laughs> so you notice I didn't even say impossible. How many of us look at the things God's called us to do and say, God, that's hard. That's a hard thing, God. I, I, you know, what if I, what if I shared the gospel with my neighbor and I get it wrong? What, 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 what if, um, what if I get up in front of a congregation and, and I say the wrong thing? What, what if, uh, what if I sing off key? I mean, you know, God, I could screw this up for you. Maybe you think God's picking on you. God, why are you always picking on me? Always asking me to do the impossible stuff. How am I supposed to do what I've never done? Jesus expects us to respond. When Jesus comes to church, he gives a commandment to do the impossible. And then he expects a response. I want to remind you of Ezekiel 36 real quick before I read the last two verses and and close this sermon out. Ezekiel is sent to a a, a valley, a valley that's full of dead bones, dry bones. Now, dead bones and dry bones aren't necessarily the same. Dry bones mean they've been sitting in the sun, they're bleached. Remember every every cartoon you've ever seen or every Western show you've ever seen that has the uh, cattle, that has the, 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 the dead cow out there? I always wondered how they got out there. Uh, do they just place the dead cattle out in the desert? Or, uh, and it's always only one. You, know, you never know. I find like 12 of them. It's just one. But, right, those are bleached bones. Those are bones. You're not going to go to that cow and find a steak. If it was a, if it was, if it was a cow, you're not going to find milk. If it was a bull, you're not going to find meat. You're not going to find anything. It's bleached bones. That's where Ezekiel goes, this bleached bone valley. And he's standing there looking out over these ble- ble- bleached bones, and I can't help but think that he, he feels a lot like many of us sometimes when we look at the things God's called us to do. This, wow, this is impossible. And God says to Ezekiel, not, hey, Ezekiel, isn't that a cool sight? Look at all those dead bodies. Wouldn't this make a great video game? Uh, 
Yeah, thank you, young people, for getting the joke. The rest of you, ask your kids when you get home what that meant. Um, no, he looks at the bones, and God says to Ezekiel, to Ezekiel, can these bones live? I don't know about you, but if I'm Ezekiel, I'm like, yeah, God, thanks a lot. I don't. There's not a good answer to that question. If I say no, you're going to say yes. If I say yes, you'll say no. I'm not going to answer. Right? But Ezekiel says, God, you know. And God says, they will live. And here's how it's going to happen. Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to a bunch of bleached bones. Now, I want you to picture this. He got on his best suit, his best tie, got hooked up to his microphone, and he stood up in front of the congregation of dead bones, and he said to them, Live! <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but if I was watching this sermon, I would probably laugh. Dude, they're dead. They're bleached bones. They're not even connected anymore. And he says, Winds come and blow upon them and give them breath. And all of a sudden, a rumbling happened in the valley. The valley started shaking like an earthquake. And all of a sudden, the bones began to fit together, hip joint to, to leg joint, knee joints together, elbows together, the wrists together. And then flesh began to form on them. And then the wind blew into them. And they stood up, an army of God. Now, I don't know about you, I could have a revival in that setting. I don't know what Ezekiel did, but I had a shouting fit about that moment. Holy cow, God did it! Do you see those dead bones? And you think your situation's impossible? What dead bones has God called you to preach to? Yeah, I know. I don't know your family situation. I got it. I don't know your background. I got it. I don't know your situation, what you're going through. I understand that. I'm a stranger to you. Right? I understand all that. But if a God can take a bunch of bleached bones in a valley and through a simple prophet put flesh and bone together and put spirit in them, then your job can't be that hard. It can't be. It can't be. I don't know how dead a city Rocky Mount might be. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I don't know. But what I am saying is this, this is not so dead that God can't revive it. When Jesus speaks, he expects a response. In verses 3, I'm sorry, 5 and 6, he asked the man to stretch out his hand. The man stretched it out. His hand was restored. Notice he was also speaking to the Pharisees. The hardness of heart folks. And the hardness of heart folks, instead of rejoicing in a mighty miracle, look at these dry bones are alive. They said, we got to get rid of this guy. He's creating controversy in the church. You saw what he did on Sunday, right? You were there. You saw healed that man right there in front of God and everybody. On a Sabbath day. All right? Are you with me on this? We're not supposed to work on a Sabbath. You just heal the guy. <sighs> got to get this guy out of the church. He's going to create problems for us. See two different responses here? Against all odds, the man attempted to stretch out his crippled hand. <laughs> Against all odds, he tried to do what he had never done before. By acting in faith to Jesus' words, the man was able to accomplish the command he was given. Remember Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Faith involves doing as well as believing. Faith means when God says it, I don't say to God, well, that sounds really fascinating. I'll wait and see what happens. Faith says, God, I'm in. I'm all in. Put me out there. Show me, where's the bones? Give me the bones. I'll look at the bones. I'll preach the bones. Give me them bones. 
Faith like Joshua, like Caleb says, give me that mountain. God, I don't want a simple ministry. Give me the hard one. I want to see your spirit poured out in such a measure that people will look at me and say, it couldn't have been that preacher. It had to be God. If, if faith responds to God's word by acting on it. Faith says if God wants it done, he's going to give me what's necessary to do it. Faith acts, God moves. Ever read Hebrews 11? Abraham believed God. Moses believed God. Joshua believed God. The prophets believed God. Enoch believed God. The men of old believed God. All these people believed God. And what do they say they do after it says they believe God? And they did something. Abraham believed God and offered his son up as a sacrifice. Moses believed God and he left the land of sin for the land of righteousness. The Pharisees conspire. Christians respond. When things don't turn out the way they want to, they attack Jesus, or they try to they decide to attack Jesus. They missed out on a miracle. They worked in disappointment and anger instead of faith. In John chapter eleven, there's another incident where Jesus does a mighty miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead. You've also heard the story. <clears throat> when Lazarus is risen from the dead, do you know how the Pharisees respond? I love this story because it just shows how stupid sometimes we can be. The Pharisees didn't respond by going, oh, holy cow, that man, he was dead. I know, I tested. <laughs> you know, he was, we wrapped him up, put him in a tomb. He stinks. And he just rose, rose up from the dead. No, what the Pharisees said is they all got together, they huddled around a corner and they said, you know what we're going to have to do now? We're going to have to kill Lazarus. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. What had just happened to Lazarus? He just got raised from the dead. <laughs> How are you going to kill a man that Jesus is going to just come back by and go, Lazarus, get up. I told you, get up, man. we got stuff to do. Right? This is the Pharisees thinking. And they want to kill Jesus too, the guy that just raised the guy from the dead. Logic doesn't seem to be taught in rabbinical schools in the first century. Um, how do you kill a guy that can raise the dead? When Jesus comes to church, he expects a response from us. Will we attempt the impossible? Will we obey his command? Or will we conspire against God? All right, I'm done. Let me, let me conclude this thing. I've, I've gone longer than I intended, but I want you to get this point. When Jesus comes to church, he sees the needs. He sees the problems. He has a plan. He comes and he issues a call to us to meet the needs, to address the problems. He then issues a command to us to obey Him. Obedience is success. You want to be successful as a Christian, you simply do what God's called you to do, and you're successful. I don't care what anybody else says about you. You're successful. Obedience is success. He issues a call, a command. He expects us to respond. If Jesus walked into Rocky Mount Baptist Church and stood here what would happen? Would he look at us with anger and be grieved at the hardness of our hearts? Or would he see our withered hands and issue an impossible command? Then if he issued an impossible command, how would you respond? If we expect to be known as God's children, the followers of Christ, then we must be ready to ignore our obstacles, real or perceived, to act in faith on what God's commanded us to do. We must be ready to act on his commands and to do the impossible. Only by acting in faith will we see withered hands or hard hearts changed. Attempt the impossible at God's command, people of God, 
Let's see what happens. When Jesus comes, we have to be prepared to respond with radical obedience, radical faith, radical. You may be here today and you may think, what's all the big deal? Why is this guy so excited? Let me tell you the rest of the story. This man didn't just heal limbs. He didn't just stretch out hands. He didn't just raise dead people and, and heal lame people and blind people and lepers. He went to a cross. And on that cross, he bore the sins of all of us. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what walk of life you come from. I don't care what you think of yourself. Sin is part of your life. All of humanity has a problem. We're in rebellion. Since Adam and Eve broke one rule, the rest of us have been breaking God's rules right and left. Just like our fathers, just like our mothers, just like our grandfathers, just all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're just like them. It's a problem. It's rebellion. And God knew the only way to fix this problem was for Him to take our sin on Himself. This is called love, ladies and gentlemen. That the mighty God, holy God, would cease to breathe in oxygen as a human being would know the weight of my sin, my failure, so that I might be called a child of God. If you don't know that today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond by faith. Don't worry about what anybody in this room thinks about it. Quite frankly, if a dead bones get up and walk today, all of us are going to be excited. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. For those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, I want to give you some recommendations this week. Set aside some time to get alone with God. Ask Jesus to give you guidance by His Spirit. Read the Word. Look in the Word. Spend time asking God to show you your withered hand or your hard heart. Then ask God what He wants you to do about it and obey. Repent. Do what He asks you to do. Set aside some time to act on what you know God has called you to do. Here, I'll give you some examples. God's called you to love your neighbor. Pick the worst one of the bunch and do an act of love for him this week. I didn't say it'd be easy. But remember, withered hands are impossible to stretch out. This week, take an opportunity to share your faith with someone. You're a little frightened. Most of us are. Talk to someone in your family. Practice your salvation story. Then share it with someone. Go the extra mile. Love as Jesus has loved us. Church, it's time for us to quit playing games. It's time for us to get serious. How will they hear unless someone goes and preaches? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, your word has carved into my heart. It has carved into my soul. And before my brothers and sisters, I admit that I have often looked at my situation and said, it's too hard. It's too difficult. I can't see a way around it. I can't see these bones becoming alive. I can't see you, God, accomplishing these things. But the reality is, Lord, and I confess before my brothers and sisters this, you are a God of the impossible. When nothing existed, you created everything. When sin invaded, you became human and died for those sins. 
As Jeremiah says, is anything impossible for our God? The answer is no. So Lord, we repent. Make us today the men and women of God you've called us to be. Call us to a radical walk of faith. And then give us the courage to act on it. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing a a hymn of invitation. I'll be right down here in the front. If uh, you would like to make a decision for Christ, or if you just want somebody to pray for you, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, We're not going to. We're going to sing a couple verses, first and last verse. What what song are we singing? Three twenty-four. So if you'll take your hymnals and stand with us, we'll sing the first and last verse. You've heard the Word of God, and you will decide whether to respond to it or not. I don't need you to come down here and tell me that, be quite honest with you. But I do want to encourage you. First of all, thank you for your kindness and your hospitality in having us here. It's a blessing always to come out and visit with you all. But let me just say this. God has called us to a radical obedience. All of us. Not those of us who stand in front of you. Not just those who are called the full-time ministry, but all of us. And only God knows the impact we can have in this society, in this country, if we only obey what we know we're supposed to do. All of us, myself included. Because I can tell you I don't love my neighbor like I should. I can tell you I don't, I don't always treat my family the way God wants me to treat them. So today what I'm calling on you to do is not an easy thing. Check your own heart. Check your own will. Repent where you need to. Rejoice where you see God working and be the church of God. Do that today and God will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, our heart's desire is to hear your well done. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the blessing of fellowship. Thank you for the word and the music. Thank you for your kindness towards us. It is indeed the cross where our Savior died and makes all of this worthwhile. We give this Sunday to you. We pray whatever happens on the rest of this day, that Christ alone would receive the rightful glory and the rightful honor. May many sons and daughters be brought to the kingdom because of what you do 
in us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.